be seated. I saw several pastors online making the joke that daylight savings time means we get an extra hour to preach. And then I noticed that the only people who thought that was funny were other pastors, which just goes to show the only people who think pastors are funny are other pastors. So I trust you did not come here expecting me to make you laugh, and I will not disappoint you. I would invite you instead to turn to your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 as we continue our series working through the book of Acts. And this morning we will hear God's word from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. But before we hear God's word to us this morning, let us call upon our Lord to ask for his help to hear his word. Heavenly Father, if you do not speak now, then my preaching is in vain. If you do not open our ears, then our listening is in vain. And so I humbly ask you to work and move by the power of your word and your Holy Spirit, that this would once again be a day of salvation. That this would once again be a day when men, women, and children receive the opportunity to call upon the name of the Lord, and that this would once again be a day that proves that your promise that everyone who calls upon your name will be saved is a sure promise and will never disappoint. So Father, have mercy on us, poor, wretched sinners, as we listen to your word and call upon you by faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord to you this morning from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, 
Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the holy, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word of God. The disciples were waiting. After all, Jesus had commanded the disciples to wait. He had given them a glorious mission in the world before he ascended to heaven, but his first command was wait. They were to wait for the Holy Spirit, for the Father's promise, for the power from on high. And they were waiting for 10 days after Jesus ascended, gathering together in one place to pray. And then it finally happened. First came the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house. Then came the sight as of divided tongues of fire, and it spread resting upon every disciple. And in this way, God sensibly confirmed that his Holy Spirit had finally come, and he had come to fill his people. This day was Pentecost, and if you've been around church in your life, you've probably heard of Pentecost. Christians celebrate Pentecost. Some even have a, a Pentecost Sunday every year. But Pentecost was not a new celebration at this time. It was one of the three annual Jewish feasts when 
Jews had to travel to Jerusalem in order to worship. We read in Exodus 23, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. These three times, these three festivals were first the Feast of Unleavened Bread that began with the Passover. Then came the Feast of Harvest, also known as the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. And the third was the Feast of Ingathering also known as the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. Pentecost, the second of these feasts, was the celebration of the completed grain harvest. So God's people would come and they would praise the Lord for his covenant faithfulness and provision yet again with the harvest. It was called Pentecost in Greek because it took place on the 50th day from Passover, and Pentecost just means the, the 50th day or 50th part. But Pentecost was always pointing to a greater day with a greater harvest that the Lord would provide. And so three Old Testament texts help us see everything that Pentecost was anticipating. These texts are Genesis 11, which tells the story of the Tower of Babel, Exodus 19, which tells the story of Mount Sinai, and then the text that Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost, Joel chapter 2. Now, I've already preached earlier in Acts chapter 1 on the significance of Pentecost as the day of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. So I'm not going to revisit that today. You can go online, go back, listen to that sermon. But Pentecost is rich and dynamic in its significance. So there's a lot more for us to understand than just a day of spirit baptism. So today we'll grow in our understanding of Pentecost as a new day of salvation in which God began to gather a new covenant people who would call upon him. So yes, Pentecost is Spirit Baptism Day. Pentecost is also the birthday of the church. So we will see this looking at Pentecost through the lens of Babel, Sinai, and Joel, and then we'll end considering our response to this glorious day. So first we look at Pentecost through the lens of Babel in Genesis 11. Genesis 11 follows what is commonly called the Table of Nations, which traces the genealogies of Noah's three sons after the flood. So, might be familiar, great flood comes upon the earth, only Noah and his family are saved. They now come out of the ark, there's one family in one place, and now they are to fill the earth. And so this table has the constant refrain of peoples divided according to their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. It ends with this summary. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. 
But you may wonder, there is just one family in one place speaking one language. How did we end up with multiple nations with multiple languages living all over the place? And Genesis 11 explains this to us. It begins, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So Moses describes a unified people with a unified language, which probably sounds to us like a very good thing. The problem was that this people was also unified in their rebellion against the Lord. For God's original great commission given to Adam and Eve, given again to Noah and his family, was to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the entire earth. But here the people just want to gather together and stay in one place. And furthermore, they want to build a tower that reaches heaven so that they can make a name for themselves. In response, God, figuratively speaking, comes down from heaven. Apparently their tower didn't reach very high, so God had to come down in order to see it and to judge their sinful rebellion. And he judges them in two ways. He confuses them and he scatters them. So first it says he came down to confuse their language so that they can no longer understand each other and work together to rebel against God. And then he disperses them. He scatters them over the face of the earth. So here are two consequences of sin, confusion and separation. And these are still consequences of sin. Sin confuses us. As Paul says, it darkens our hearts. It makes us futile in our thinking. If you need proof of that, just consider that in our day and age, our day of enlightenment, we have gotten to the point where we honestly seem to struggle differentiating between men and women. We, we can't even tell the difference anymore. And I don't say that in a mocking way. I say that in a way that should lead us to have great pity and compassion on our world. We have people who are growing up and they're not even sure if they're a boy or a girl. That is devastating. Yes, we, we know that God's wrath comes down upon unrighteousness. And if we don't feel anger at sin, we haven't been conformed yet to Christ. But if we only feel anger, then we still haven't been conformed to Christ. For how did Jesus look out upon Jerusalem to these rebellious people? He looked out upon them and it says he had compassion on them. He had pity. He were a bunch of sheep without a shepherd, nobody to tell them right from wrong, truth from falsehood. Do we look out upon the confusion of our world and have compassion and pity and long for them to know the good shepherd who can lead them into the truth, to clarity? Sin confuses us. 
It also separates us, not only from God, but from one another. Sin's corruption has built a dividing wall of hostility, Paul says. Again, if you need proof, just turn on the news and you will see videos of mankind absolutely obliterating one another. Again, this is devastating. But now look at Acts chapter 2 through the lens of Genesis 11. In Acts chapter 2, we, we see, we hear the sound of wind, there's the sight of fire. Wind and, and fire often in the Old Testament signified God's presence. He was coming down. And it says in verse 2, the sound came from heaven. So like in Genesis 11, here in Acts 2, God is coming down to earth once again. But he doesn't come this time to cause confusion. He comes to heal confusion. See, at Babel, one language became many, and no one can understand each other. At Pentecost, the disciples begin speaking in many different languages so that everybody can actually understand what they're saying. They're speaking in languages that they did not know. And so the people gathered in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven actually understand them. You can't read Acts 2 and not hear the reversal of Babel. Babel brought confusion. Pentecost is bringing clarity. You notice in verse 6, verse six it says the people are bewildered. That's the same Greek word used in the, the translation, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis eleven seven, 7, which says God came to confuse, to bewilder their languages. But now the confusion is not resulting from an inability to understand. They're bewildered because they can understand. This is the miracle of tongues in Acts chapter 2. The disciples can speak in known human languages that they had never learned. Yes, everyone generally understood or, or learned at least the more educated Greek and Aramaic. But Galileans wouldn't know Parthian. Just, there's no reason to learn that language. And so... They are amazed that they can understand. Pentecost is a day of clarity, of understanding. Now it's debatable, but some scholars believe Luke's list of representative nations present reflects the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. At the very least, Luke wants us to see that Jews had come from all over the known world. Not literally every nation under heaven, but from every region of the known earth. You, you trace it through, you've got east, west, north, south. Since Pentecost was one of the annual feasts when Drew, Jews traveled to Jerusalem, it makes sense that there would be Jews present in the city at this time from all over the known world because they had to come worship at Jerusalem. Some estimate there were probably a million Jews in the city at Pentecost at this time. And so the message is clear. 
all of Israel is beginning to be restored. What sin had confused, God was now healing. What had been a means of separation is now becoming a means of unification. For the Spirit is the Spirit of truth and of illumination. He brings the light of understanding. He's also the Spirit of peace, who applies to us the work of Christ, who in his flesh, Paul says, broke down that dividing wall of hostility. So Pentecost is a new day of salvation. It is the beginning of a new people of God. And that new people begins with Israel. But it will not end with Israel. For these Jews would return home, but they would return home to their various lands with a new gospel message. So God had scattered peoples and nations all over the world, but now he would send laborers out to those peoples, lands, and nations to gather them back in. And what about the spiritual and physical barriers? The confusion of sin and the literal fact that you go out to the world and there's going to be a lot of languages that you don't understand. Well, Pentecost was the announcement that there would not be any barrier that could stop God's gospel from going forth. Again, tongues in Acts chapter 2 is clearly referring to the supernatural ability to speak other human languages that the disciples had not known. It was a supernatural ability, not a supernatural or heavenly language. The people heard the disciples speaking in their native tongues, which they understood, and that's what amazed them. The gift revealed God's universal purpose, and the gift was a means of accomplishing that universal purpose. The restoration of all Israel was the beginning of restoring the whole world. This was the harvest, the greater harvest. He was gathering God's people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. You see, even the very timing of God in redemptive history proclaims to us the gospel truth. It's no accident that Jesus died at Passover. The celebration of atonement for sin, for escaping death. And it is no accident that the Spirit was sent at Pentecost, at the Feast of the Harvest. It was God's declaration. My harvest is complete. My people are out there. And what was the third annual feast? The Feast of Ingathering. That would be the disciples' mission. The harvest is there. You now have to go and gather it in. It's just not all in one field. It, it's in fields all over the world. Pentecost, therefore, was a birthday. The birth of the new people of God that would be made up of all nations. It was a new day of salvation. This is confirmed when we look at Pentecost through the lens of Sinai and the inauguration of the Old Covenant. 
In Exodus 19, we again hear a story of God coming down to earth as he descends upon Mount Sinai. And he does this to inaugurate the old covenant with Israel. And when he appears, he appears with thunderous sounds and with flashes of light. But then God commands Moses to ascend Mount Sinai so that he can receive God's covenant law, and then he brings it back down to God's covenant people. Now, the law showed God's people their sin, and it pointed them to their future salvation, but the law in and of itself could not save God's people, and it could not empower their obedience, which is why God promised that one day there would be a new covenant. He promised in Jeremiah 31, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But he says this new covenant will not be like the old covenant in one sense. Because the new covenant will not just reveal sin and salvation, it will be the very power of salvation and for obedience. So again, God says, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. And you may wonder, well, how is God going to do that? How is he going to write the law on our hearts, giving us the very power to do what his law commands? Well, God explains through the prophet Ezekiel. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new, uh, give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. How does all of this help us better understand what is happening at Pentecost? Well, again, the sights and sounds of Pentecost signify to us God is coming to his people once again. But what happened a few days before Pentecost? Just as Moses ascended Mount Sinai to come back with God's covenant law, we read about Jesus ascending. Not Mount Sinai, but ascending into heaven to Mount Zion. And at Pentecost, he is in his spirit coming back down with the new covenant law, which is not written on stone, but is written on human hearts, because the spirit is the scribe of the new covenant who writes it on our very heart. The spirit is the power, not only applying Christ's cleansing work, but he is new power to obey what God's law commands. So Pentecost is new covenant day. It is the public announcement. The new covenant is here. It's inaugurated. What Jeremiah foretold has come. The new people is a new covenant people. 
And this day had been fixed and foretold long ago. Not just in general promises of a new covenant, but in specific promises. So when the people hear the disciples speaking in their languages, they they ask, what does this mean? And let me just pause here and say, some of you might be in this stage right now. Where you... You might be coming to church, you're hearing the gospel, but you're just asking, what does this mean? That is a a wonderful place to be. we'll, We'll get to this at the end, but you'll notice there are two responses to this supernatural activity. One response is just to mock and dismiss. Another response is, I think, just the, the first workings of the Spirit, which is to just get you to ask, what does this mean? I want to hear more. So if that's you, keep pressing into that question. Seek greater understanding. Because Peter gets up and he answers the question. And he turns to the prophet Joel. So Peter's is the first of several sermons or speeches in Acts. This is the repeated pattern we, we see in Acts. An event happens, people don't understand what's happening, and so somebody gets up to preach God's word and explain what, what's happening. This is why in Christian churches, the central primary aspect of our worship is still preaching. It's how God brings understanding to his people. Now Luke doesn't record the entire sermons that were preached in these days. These are clearly accurate summaries of what Peter and and others preach. So I don't want any of you coming up to me after the service and saying, you know, Pastor, Peter preached a three-minute sermon and 3,000 people came to faith. Now, just saying you might want to try that. To that, I would simply point you to verse 40 of chapter 2, which says, And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. Many other words. We'll leave it at that. Peter's sermon was a three-point sermon. He refers to three Old Testament texts, and from each text, he has a main point. The rest of our time, we're just going to look at his first text and point. So as Peter gets up, he first just wants to clarify for everybody that what's happening here is not the result of intoxication. We're we're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m., so... That'd be pretty early for that to happen. And then he refers to Joel chapter 2. And his point is what I've already explained. This is the promised day of salvation for the entire world. God, Joel says, will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Verse 17. And the promise is that Everyone who calls upon the Lord will be saved. Verse 21. So I'm not this morning going to go through every detail of this passage because I don't want us to lose the main point. And the main point is simply the day of the Spirit was a new day 
of salvation for all people. All of God's people would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So there's not different tiers of Christians in God's kingdom. Spiritual gifts may vary from person to person, but the gift of the Spirit does not. God poured out his Spirit on all flesh. Not meaning every single person on the earth, but emphasizing every kind of person on the earth will receive the Spirit. We know this because Joel emphasizes different categories of people, both genders, sons and daughters, all kinds of ages, young and old, even different social classes, male and female servants. So we see the gospel is not reserved for one kind of person, and the Holy Spirit is not reserved for one kind of person. And don't get overly fixated on this language of prophecy, dreams, and visions. As if, if you're not having dreams and visions that are revealing things that, well, it must mean I don't have the Holy Spirit. Now remember, this is just a, a way of describing how God revealed himself in the Old Testament. It's, it's the language of, of revelation, of being able to know God, his words, his ways, and being able to tell others about God and his words and his ways. So if you were here for our series through Hebrews and Hebrews 1, we see a clear differentiation. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The point of this prophecy is that God's revelation is, is no longer reserved for a select few, as if only a few people will know what God has said and be able to speak his word. In this sense, and in this sense only, just as the reformers would speak of the priesthood of all believers, we're all priests now in one sense, in this sense, we can speak of the, the prophethood of all believers. Every believer has direct access to God's completed revelation in the Holy Scriptures, and we are all enabled to tell others what God has said. So this isn't denying different offices in the church, different gifts within the church. It's simply referring affirming that God's word and his spirit are not reserved for a select few super Christians. We all have his word. We all have his spirit. And this is actually the day that Moses had longed and prayed for. Think of in the old covenant, who was Moses? Moses was the mediator between God and the people. Moses was the one who would go and speak with God and then come and tell the people what he had said. Moses was the one who had received the Holy Spirit to equip him for his ministry. And you might remember a little story in Numbers chapter 11, when God tells Moses to gather and appoint 70 other men who will help Moses lead. And God says, I'm going to take some of the spirit that I have given you, and I'm going to place it on these 70 men. Well, 
We read then that the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. That sound a little bit familiar to Acts chapter 2. Well, then two other men named Eldad and Medad receive the spirit and begin prophesying. And this makes Joshua jealous for Moses. He comes to Moses and he says, Eldad and, and Medad are, are prophesying. You need to tell them to stop. And Moses responds, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's peoples were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Joel was announcing that Moses' prayer would be answered. The Spirit would come upon all God's people, not just a Moses, not just a 70. Every believer would be able to speak the Word of God because everyone would know the Word of God. And Pentecost was that promised day. And immediately, all of the disciples, not just the 12, I think it's referring to the, the 120 that we know were gathered, they all begin prophesying. And what is prophesying here? Well, clearly, as you see in verse 11, what they were doing was simply declaring the mighty works of God. That's what prophesying looked like. They were praising the Lord. They were speaking of all that he had done. And so again, we see that the harvest is plentiful and complete. God's people are out there and God's people are equipped to go and gather them. They know God's word and they can tell others God's word. So how should we respond? Well, I've, I've already noted there were two responses to this day of Pentecost. Some responded with, scorn and mockery. Maybe they didn't understand what the disciples were saying. Maybe they, they did, and yet they just wanted to explain or rationalize it away. So instead of acknowledging the supernatural, they say, well, they, just made, may, they must be drunk because apparently alcohol can make you speak in other languages that you've never learned. And yet, it was not the right answer. But we see here what John the Baptist had foretold, that on this day of baptism with spirit and fire, which I talked about in chapter one, this day of salvation was also a day of judgment, because the gospel is a double-edged sword. If a gift of salvation is offered, it now presents you with a choice. You receive it or you reject it. To receive it is to be saved. To reject it is to be judged. The Messiah's spirit and fire baptism, as John said in Luke 3, would separate the wheat from the chaff. John had said in Luke chapter 3, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See, there's always two parts to gathering the harvest. 
You gather the wheat and you burn the chaff. One event, two outcomes. The same is true with the spiritual harvest. When the Spirit descended, not everybody believed and received. We're amazed that 3,000 people were added in one day. But again, just remember, there were probably a million Jews in the city. Most did not believe. The same miraculous display was received and rejected. And so we must always remember the supernatural is not sufficient to save. You hear people say, well, if God just revealed himself in a supernatural way, I'd believe it. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit? No, you wouldn't. You would explain it away. You would just dismiss it. You see, a gift is a wonderful thing, but a gift is always a choice. Receive or reject. Will we receive the gift that God is freely offering us? If you're hesitant, let me just encourage you with this word. Everyone. It's a wonderful word. Everyone. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You notice what Joel's prophecy says. It says the spirit and the gospel, it's not just a boy thing or a girl thing. The gospel isn't just a, a young person thing or an old person thing. The gospel is not just a, a rich people thing or a, a poor people thing. The gospel's not just an intense person thing. Once had visitors here at, at Good Shepherd, and I greeted them after the service, and the, the, the wife just very humbly and politely asked me, just, just wondering, uh, are you always this? And I said, intense? Yeah. Are you always this intense? And yes, I am. But you don't have to be intense like me. You don't have to feel things like me. If you're just more calm and chill, the Lord bless you. I wish I were more like you. The gospel is an everyone thing. Kids, are you waiting to call upon the Lord? Do you think, well, that... It's just for older people. It isn't. That's why we want you in these worship services. I love to hear you moving around. I even love to hear when you're crying or upset about something. You know, you know why? Because it means you're here. And it means you are hearing the gospel that is for you. Not for you when you get older. It is for you right now. You always hear it. It's never too late to call upon the Lord. Well, you know what? It's never too early to call upon the Lord. And maybe you kids are still asking, but what does it mean? That's okay. Keep asking. Ask your parents. Ask your parents parents, your, your pastors, and I'll, I'll try not to be intense and scary if you come, then ask me. Ask your Sunday school teachers. 
But at the very basic level, if you're wondering, well, what does it mean to call upon the Lord? It's not a magic prayer. It's not these specific words that you have to learn. It's just two things. To call upon the Lord, you just need to see, I I need help. I'm a sinner. It means I, I don't always do the right things, and I need somebody to help me. That's the first part. And the second part is just knowing Jesus is my help. He's the one who takes care of all my bad things. <laughs> he just takes them away. He's atoned for them on the cross. So to call is just know you're a sinner. Jesus is your Savior. And you trust him. Now, teenagers, college students, adults, are you waiting to call upon the Lord? It's not too early. It's not too late. We are, have never grown to the point that we have nothing more to learn. We've never gotten to an age where we cannot still be wrong and ask for God's help. I often think to myself, the day that I think I have nothing left to learn, the day I think I cannot be corrected, is the day I am no longer useful as a pastor or effective as a Christian. You are never too set in your ways to be changed by God's Word and Holy Spirit. Call upon the Lord. God reminds us of this promise every time we hear the Word preached, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is one reason I love to do it every week. Because every week, through Word and Sacrament, God is reminding us that Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There has never been an exception to that promise in the history of the world, and there never will be an exception to that promise in the history of the world. For at Pentecost, God came down and he called to everyone so that everyone will call upon him. The day of salvation has begun, but it has not ended. So every day is still an opportunity for salvation. Do not waste God's gift. Don't throw it away. Don't explain it away. Receive it. And Christians, keep telling the world about this promise. Tell others about the mighty works of God. For the first evidence of the Spirit's Filling and empowering was to open the disciples' mouths. It wasn't just for them. Their hearts were filled. Their mouths were opened. So let us speak boldly, trusting that nothing can stop the spread of the gospel. There is no barrier that the Spirit cannot overcome. The good news of Pentecost is that the harvest is plentiful. So let us pray for the Lord of the harvest to send laborers, and let us also be those laborers to gather God's people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you did not leave us to the confusion and separation of our sin, but you sent your Son and you sent your spirit to give us light, to bring healing, to bring unity. So I pray that as the rest of the world 
hears us, sees us and the way we worship and the way we relate to one another, they would hear the gospel and they would see the gospel. Fill our hearts, open our mouths, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've already said, one of the ways that God keeps assuring us of the truth of his gospel promises is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. As we eat and drink by faith, we are continuing to call upon the Lord. We are continuing to acknowledge our sin and trust in Jesus alone as our Savior. Because the gospel is not just beginning with Jesus and then now we, we go and we do our own thing. Christian faith is daily depending upon Jesus Christ for our salvation. We need him every hour, every minute, every second. And so as we come to the table, we are once again call upon him, calling upon the name of the Lord, acknowledging our sin, and trusting as Jesus as our Savior. And as we eat and drink by faith, God is calling to us once again, when you call upon me, I save you. No exceptions. And so, if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're a communicant member here at Good Shepherd or another Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming church, we welcome you to this table. This is God's grace for you. If you've not placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or are walking in unrepentant sin, meaning you're not ready yet to, to say, Jesus, I want you to take this away. You, you just want to go your own way. Then we would ask you to remain seated that you would not eat and drink judgment upon yourself. But our prayer for you is that today would be the day that you called upon the Lord. Right here and now, in your heart, by God's grace, you would acknowledge that you are a sinner and you would rejoice that Jesus is your Savior. If you have questions, find me. Find Pastor Ryan. Find anyone else in this church. They would love to talk with you more about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in a moment, Pastor Ryan and I will stand here at the front and come down the center aisle. We'll hand you a piece of bread, then go to either side, take a cup, return to your seats, and we will partake as one body in Jesus Christ. But before we do, let us hear the words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray. Merciful Heavenly Father, I pray that as we hear your call once again to come to Jesus, we would come and receive the grace that is ours only in him. 
wash us clean of all of our sins. Give us your power to obey your good commands. Lord, we thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your word. May Christ be exalted now as we look to him by faith. Amen.